with me to Colossians 3. Colossians 3 will be our first stop today. We're going to look at uh, several passages, but that's where we'll hit first. Well, we've been looking at the fundamentals of forgiveness. And just to review what those are, receiving forgiveness from God, that's the source. If we're going to recover the lost art of forgiveness, then we've got to receive His forgiveness because that's what enables us to be forgiving. And being forgiving, being eager, ready, willing, ready to quickly and generously forgive, that's the heart of recovering the lost art of forgiveness. And the last couple of weeks we've looked at asking and giving forgiveness because that's how we honor our forgiving Father as His obedient children. The fact that we're willing to ask and give forgiveness honors His demand and His desire for us to be a forgiving people. But today, I want to talk about loving. Something that sometimes when a series of forgiveness is done might be overlooked. And I want you to see this morning this. Loving one another is the context in which the art of forgiveness is recovered and mastered. Loving is the content. It's like the oxygen. It's the oxygen, oxygen that forgiveness needs in order to breathe. Remove love from the room and forgiveness leaves with it. Fill a room with love. It's the oxygen that forgiveness needs to grow. Now, Paul makes this clear in his teaching on forgiveness in these two classic passages that we've been to again and again and again because these passages are just full of the forgiveness principles that God wants us to learn. So Colossians chapter 3, look at verses 12 and 13. And what we tend to focus on is forgive each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. We've looked at that again and again, but look, before that, the context, the context is one of love. Love's not used, well, it is, beloved. But all these synonyms for love, all these expressions of love. So, as those who have been chosen of God, which was a great act of love and grace, holy and beloved, you're so loved, now put on a heart of compassion. There it is, love, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. Think of 1 Corinthians 13. The context here is love, right? Okay, now turn back to Ephesians chapter 4, the other Paul classic Paul passage. Ephesians 4, 32. And again, because of chapter divisions in our English Bibles, because verse 32 is the last verse in chapter 4, we tend to disconnect it from the very next thing that Paul says. So look at Ephesians 4, 32. Again, before the command to be forgiving comes, there's the command to be kind to one another and tenderhearted. Love is the context. But he says, then he goes on, he says, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. But move on, look at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. There's the idea again. God has loved me so much, uh, then I need to love others. And he says, walk in love just as Christ also has loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Love is the context. 
in which the lost art of love is recovered and mastered. Now, last week, we saw that awesome video of Corey Timboom, where she shared how she forgives one of her Nazi concentration camp guards. Is that just awesome? I mean, I could look at that every day, every week, and still be moved by it. And here's what she said. Here, here's, uh, here's a, an, you can find the article. I still stood there with a coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can, can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much to shake the hand of the outstretched, uh, now born-again Nazi guard. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. If you remember, too, in the video where she's sharing her testimony, she mentioned Romans 5.8 at this moment as well, which says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I simply bring that out to you that whenever I've read about Corey Timboom talking about forgiveness, she talks as much about love as she does forgiveness. Why? Because that's the key. That's the context. In fact, I read an article this week about two priests that were talking about the Clintons during the past election. That sounds like a joke, but it's not. This is an article. Okay. <laughs> Here's what they said, and I like it just because it, it kind of takes probably some of us out of our comfort zone. And here's what they said. Many have questioned, including myself, this is one of the priests, why she, Hillary Clinton, has chosen to remain loyal to her husband. In one of my many conversations with Friar Mead, the topic of the Clintons' marriage came up with me sharing my concerns over the wisdom of Secretary Clinton choosing to remain in the marriage. To this, Friar Mead simply asked, Do you think it's possible that she may actually love her husband? I share this story the man goes on, neither to endorse or not to endorse Secretary Clinton's candidacy. Instead, because in that moment, I realized something about forgiveness which I had never realized before. Our ability to forgive is predicated on our ability to love. And that's, there's a lot of wisdom in that. I think many people have had that question about, about the Clintons. And there's all sorts of maybe speculation about motives. But the reality is we see other people who, who do amazing things. Corey Timbu, why would you forgive like that? Well, the reason is our ability for, to forgive is based on our forg- ability to love. Our ability to forgive is based on our ability to love. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at recovering the lost art of loving, covering, and going. And you're going to see how love is related to all of that. Let's begin with this first point, which I'm going to move through quickly, but I feel compelled, I felt compelled to include it 
One, because that's just me, but two, because of the need of the hour, and that's this. What's love got to do with forgiveness? And I would say everything in context. Everything. See, there was a day when you could say, what's love got to do with forgiveness? And you could say everything, and everybody would know what you mean. But now you have to say everything in context. Because here's the reality. Everything that we're going to say or everything there one could say about love and forgiveness needs to be put through the filter of, let's just use Ephesians 4.32. Love will always strive to forgive in a God-surrendering way. See, love doesn't just go around loving, uh, uh, forgiving unconditionally. No, love strives to forgive in a God-surrendered way. When you look at that verse, Ephesians 4, it says, we are to love just as God. And that's the starting point. God is the one that defines love, and He's the one that tells us how to forgive, okay? Too often, here's what happens. John, 1 John says, God is love. But too often, people interpret that to mean love is God. Are you with me? Do you see the difference? In other words, everything's love. If, 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 if what you teach or what you do doesn't come off as loving, then it's not, it's not godly. No, love is not the God. God is love, and God determines what love is, and He determines what forgiveness is. So here's the thing. Love strives to forgive according to God's will, which is revealed in God's Word, and which reveals God's way. Okay, that's all, I'm, that's, that's all I, can, I, I can't go anymore. Number two, love always strives to forgive in a Christ-exalting way. Love always strives to forgive in a Christ-exalting way. Why do I say that? Because we're to forgive just as God in Christ. Listen, if God doesn't do anything apart from Christ, then neither should we. Can I get it? A... Amen. Yes, that's good. I like that. Now, love exalts Christ in forgiveness by not diminishing who He is as the exclusive mediator. Any attempt to gain forgiveness with God apart from Christ is not loving and it's not going to work. Okay? Because he's the exclusive mediator because he is the God man. Also, any love exalts Christ in forgiveness by not diminishing what he did as the exclusive mediator. In other words, what he did was done on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and it is both merciful and just. So the idea is any sort of love, any sort of forgiveness that's apart from the gospel or at least apart from Christ is not valid. Third, that leads us to love always strives to forgive in a gospel-saving way. In a gospel-saving way. Because let's face it, what I've just described to you is the gospel, right? Okay, in a gospel-saving way. Because I like this. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Well, how did He forgive me? Well, He didn't forgive me without me hearing the message and responding to the message. Okay, God didn't unilaterally, unconditionally love and forgive me without me knowing it. And yet, even in our area here, we have popular pastors 
preaching that kind of universalism. So again, any kind of love, any kind of forgiveness, to be honest with you, that doesn't involve personal interaction and sharing. Hey, you did, wrong, you did me wrong here. I realize I did you wrong. Will you forgive me? Yes, I will forgive you. There needs to be a word of forgiveness spoken, and there needs to be a response. Will you forgive me? Yes, I will forgive you. That's gospel-saving love. Third, love always strives to forgive in a spirit-empowered way. Why do I say that? Because if we're supposed to do just as God has done, I can't do it and neither can you. Those two words, just as, means he better be involved. You see what I'm saying? Because here's the deal. We have a tendency to lower everything to human expectation and to human ability, which then eliminates the need of the Spirit, sets aside the gospel, diminishes who Christ is and what He did, and does not glorify God. Okay, I got that out of my system. I can move on now to the real lesson. Are you okay with me? But that's the context. We just got to understand. We got to understand that context. Okay, now... This spirit empowering, by the way, just makes sense because what's the first characteristic of the fruit of the spirit? Love. So you're not going to do this without him. All right. And all those words that we read in Ephesians and Colossians just a few moments ago, patience, gentleness, long suffering. What are those? Fruit of the spirit. Okay. so you're going to have to do this. Well, let me show you two things that the spirit's love will enable you to do. And so here's point number two of the lesson. Love motivates us. Love motivates us to cover sins with forgiveness whenever we can. Love motivates us to cover sins with forgiveness. Now, I'm going to take you on an adventure into my little weird world. As I looked at this verse, and as I looked last week at this idea of love covering a multitude of sins... I was struck that I may not be, may not have taught this correctly in the past. And so I've struggled and worked through this. And I'm going to take you through that struggle. Some of you will hate that. Hang in there with me. Some of you will enjoy some validation. Some of you may disagree, and that's fine too, as long as you, we're looking at the Bible. Amen? Right? That's the goal. But here it is. Here's the classic verse. 1 Peter 4.8. 1 Peter. So turn your Bibles. Turn on your Bibles, flip your Bibles, do whatever with your Bibles. But let's look at 1 Peter 4, 8, and we'll look at verses 7 through 9 just to get it in context, okay? 1 Peter 4, 7 through 9. And here's what it says. The end of all things is near. And if that was true 2,000 years ago, it's even more true today. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And then he says this, No matter what else I've said, above all, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And then he goes on and says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. So, you know, it's easy to be unloving when you spend time in close quarters. Right? It's called family. Now, I'd love to do a little Berean on this verse. You know, what's the point? Well, keep fervent in your love for one another. Who are the people? One another. 
Christians, body of believers. How great's the priority above all things? How great's the passion? Keep it fervent, burning, alive. What's the purpose? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Not a few sins. Not certain sins, but a multitude of sins. So, how do you put this into practice? What does this really mean? Now, here's the common interpretation and application of 1 Peter 4, 8. And there it, it, you have it there. Love overlooks a multitude of minor sins. That's the common interpretation and application. How many are familiar with that? How many, how many have heard? Yeah. You, you know why many, basically everybody that's been here for any length of time ought to raise your hand because that's how I've taught it for many, many years. And I hesitated last week to teach it that way because I, it just struck me. I don't know. Wait a minute. Love overlooks a multitude of minor sins. Love bypasses the forgiveness process and overlooks minor offenses and chooses to unilaterally, unconditionally forgive certain sins and offenses. Basically, the minor ones, right? Well, here's how I would, here's how I, I, I understood it that way and I would teach it that way. And here's what I would teach I would teach that forgiving others kicks in. When their offense is so great, it throws the covers of love off the situation or the relationship. In other words, love, 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 and then when you can't love anymore, start forgiving. You know, go into a formal forgiveness process. Now, let me say very quickly, loud and clear, that's good sanctified common sense. Okay, that's just a wise thing to do. You know, love, if you're going to, if love is... Long-suffering, is if love is gentle and kind and patient, then love is not, every time it's offended, love's not going to say, look, I, you know, you and I, let's get together, we've got to talk about something, okay? Anybody, you know, in fact, if you did that all the time, you would be labeled what? Unloving, right? Okay, so I'm not saying, I'm saying that's wise, do that. I'm just saying, I'm not convinced that's what this verse is teaching. Okay, are we okay? So, three problems. As I sat and I think about that interpretation and look at that verse, and I just wrote these out. First of all, it takes covers, that idea of covering, in a very literal sense, as though love is a blanket that hides sins and offenses of others while they continue to do them. Right? I mean, that, that's basically when, when, when I say, hey, love people, you know, let love cover what they're doing until... It's so offensive or so habitual or so serious, it kicks off the blanket of love and then go into the forgiveness process. All right? But if what... So, the problem with that leads to the second problem. If that's the case, it removes love from the forgiveness process and begins to reduce the forgiveness process to a harsh, rigid process without love. In other words, I love, 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 love till I can't love anymore. And then we go and we start talking forgiveness. And let's face it, that's kind of what we do with the forgiveness process. Okay, I don't really love you and I don't really like you and I don't really want to do this, but I know I'm supposed to. You sinned, you wronged me. Now, what are you going to do about it? Well, you know what? I don't like you very much either, you know? And I see some things you did wrong, but I know what I'm supposed to do. So, yeah, forgive me. Well, I forgive you. Boom. You see what I'm saying? I mean, it's kind of the idea. You're supposed to be real loving, real loving. And then when the offense kicks that blanket of love off, love's tossed to the side. Now we go into this forgiving process. 
I think it can tend towards that. Or, to be quite honest with you, the other tendency it can be is that we just always covering everything with love, or so we say, covering with love, covering with love, building up, frustration, resentment, not going, oh, I'm just, I'm just, I just love them. I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm just not going to deal with it. That's the loving thing to do. That's what Jesus would do. Love bears all things, endures all things. So it has a t- tendency to replace forgiveness with loving. Okay, third problem. It's not consistent with how covering a multitude of sins is used elsewhere in the Bible, including Proverbs 10, 12, and 17, 9, which are the Old Testament verses Peter is referring to. So my biggest problem as I studied this out for the last couple of weeks is, wait a minute, I don't think we understand what covering a multitude of sins means in the Bible. We've just got a popular interpretation that has been repeated over and over by people like me who have done that. And wait a minute, I may be wrong. Now, first of all, that's okay. Because pastors aren't what? Infallible. The word is. And so it's good to have leaders that go back and say, wait a minute, let me look at this again. So let's look at it. How is covering a multitude of sins used in the Bible? Well, first of all, there's a lot of, there's a lot of evidence we can look at. And, and I've given you two, uh, three of the main passages. I could have included Romans 4, 7 because Paul quotes Psalm 32. But take a look at that. Here is covering a multitude of sins. Or covering sin, at least. Psalm 32, 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, which equals what? Whose sin is covered. So forgiveness and covering are the same or similar or synonyms. How blessed is a man the Lord does not impute, does not count his sin against him. In other words, how blessed is a man whose sins are forgiven and they are covered. Look at verse 5. How did that happen? I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt. So the covering came through confession and repentance. Would you agree? Okay. Psalm 85, 1 through 3. O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their Sin. You withdrew your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. So again, forgiving and covering of sins. And then even Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions. That's the same word for covering. He who covers or hides, conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. So, what's the, what's the idea there? Uh, the idea is confession and forsaking of sin is how you get your sins covered versus hiding your sins and remaining in your sins. So, what do, what do you see from that? Covering is equal to forgiving, but not without repentance and confession. And then God cancels the debt. He canceled David's debt. He canceled Israel's debt. And he no longer held it against them, which, all, by the way, is all very loving. It's a loving thing to do. 
Now, what happens when you do not repent and God does not cover or forgive your sins? If covering means forgiving, what happens? Well, there's three Old Testament passages that say things like this. Listen to Psalms 5.10. Hold them guilty, O God, by their own devices let them fall in the multitude of their transgressions. There's the phrase. Thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. Listen to Isaiah 59.12. For our transgressions are multiplied, multiple, a multitude of transgressions, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities. And Jeremiah is the same thing. Here's the point. Covering is equal to forgiving. And when there's no covering, when there is no forgiving, the multitude of sins remain with us and will lead us into God's judgment. I think that's what those passages are saying. Okay, you'll have to decide whether you see that as well. Now, how is covering a multitude of sins used in the New Testament? Well, there's one passage, James 5, 19 through 20, that uses the same phrase, covering a multitude of sins. Let's look how it what it says. So turn your Bibles, James chapter 5. Look at James chapter 5, 19 through 20. All right, James chapter 5, 19 through 20. Let's take a look at it. My brethren, here's how James ends this very practical letter. My brethren, if many, any among you strays from the truth. Okay, so this isn't minor offenses. This isn't little things you can overlook. If any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back. In other words, you lead him to repentance and confession. And the asking of forgiveness. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from his error. So again, repentance, repeated twice. Of his way will do two things. He will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Obviously, there a multitude of sins are not just my... It's all... It, it's, it's, it, the, the implication of that phrase is... All your sins are forgiven, past, future, uh, past, present, and future. I like what uh, pastor and author Kent Hughes says about this verse. Restoration covers a multitude of sins. Covering sins signifies forgiveness, which we've seen. And a multitude of sins indicates the extent of forgiveness. It will all. It, it is always a multitude of sins that is covered. When I was brought to Christ, millions of sins were covered over, and it's the same with you. This is viewed in the Bible as a supreme blessedness. And then he quotes Psalm 32, Psalm 85. Blessed is he, sings the psalmist, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. What a blessed feat is accomplished when a sinner is turned away from his error. Now listen to what he says. God alone does this, but he does use human instruments who love him and who love people, for love covers all sins. And then he quotes Proverbs ten twelve. So here's my conclusion. Taking you through that, here's my conclusion. That in these passages, covering is not overlooking minor offenses. It's forgiving a multitude of serious sins. Okay, thus far, that's what I, I think that's pretty conclusive. So, in general, 
these phrases and this meaning is not the idea that we typically hear and get. Okay, so how's love related to all this? Well, First Peter four is quoting two verses in Pro, or not quoting, but referencing two verses in Proverbs. Okay, and so I have them there. And just for the sake of time, I'm kind of giving you my conclusions, and I'm giving you the verse. Here's what I think Proverbs ten twelve is saying. It seems to say that love motivates us to be forgiving. Proverbs ten twelve seems to say that love motivates us to be forgiving toward all sins and moves us to give forgiveness to all who repent and ask for it. So let's take a look at it. You have it there in your notes. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Here, love does the covering and all uh, covering of all transgressions, not, not just minor ones, but major ones. So kind of the blanket thing is not going to work here. It covers all of them. And it's the opposite of stirring up strife, which is what hatred does. So here, here's what I think is happening. Love acts like forgiveness. Hatred looks for and exaggerates fault, but love seeks ways to make sins disappear. And what is God's way of making sins disappear? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Hatred stirs up strife. Why? Because you're always looking at this offense, what you did, what you said. Hatred stirs up strife. But love, which is the opposite of hatred, it seeks to forgive and be forgiving. Because when you do that, instead of focusing on offenses, you forgive offenses, what happens? Unity and peace. Are you with me? Love forgives and goes through the forgiveness process. What about Proverbs 17.9? In Proverbs 17.9, it appears that we forgive the sins of others and keep the promise not to repeat the matter in order to multiply love. So I would say to you, Proverbs 10.12 is how love motivates us to forgive. And I would say that Proverbs 17.9, love is the goal of forgiveness. The goal is to multiply love. Look at Proverbs 17.9. He who conceals a transgression seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Now, I don't think the idea here is to conceal a transgression in the sense of just overlooking it, just ignoring it. I think the idea is forgiving it, to be forgiving and to go through, if need be, the forgiveness process. And when you go through the forgiveness process, what did we learn? You make a promise to do what? Not bring it up to the person or to yourself. Not to bring it up to the person, not to bring it up to others in a way that is to use it against them. Well, what's the other side of this verse? It says, repeat matters separates friends. And notice that in both of these Proverbs, what is being covered or dealt with are transgressions which is a very strong word for sin. This isn't minor stuff. Transgressions are what rebels do. They're law-breaking. Transgression is breaking God's law. So, 
now we come to 1 Peter 4.8. In 1 Peter 4.8, the fact that love covers a multitude of sins, here's my conclusion. Keep a burning love for one another. Keep fervent in your love. Keep a burning love for one another. Why? Because love motivates us to cover a multitude of sins with biblical forgiveness and to, in order to multiply loving relationships. Love is what motivates us. Love is what moves us. And love is our goal. We want to multiply loving relationships. And what's the key to all that? Everything we've taught in this series about forgiveness. That's the key. That's the key. When when we refuse to be forgiving toward others, we're refusing to what? Love them. And when we choose to love people and say we love them, what are we committing to do? Forgiving them. I don't think Peter is saying that love overlooks minor offenses, which it does. 1 Corinthians 13. I think what he's saying is this. Love motivates us and moves us to go about forgiving in a loving manner. It's the context in which we do this. And so as we go through the loving process, we don't exaggerate people's sins and make them bigger than what they are. We don't expose their sin broader or wider. than we We don't spread it around farther than it needs to go. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't dig up the past. And bring up the past and keep using the past again. Love doesn't do that. Love is the context of the forgiveness process. I I, I thought about it this way. Love loves to cover sin. Love loves to cover sin through biblical forgiveness. That's what I think it's saying. So, I don't know if you're convinced. That's up to you. But I think it teaches something very different. It says, hey, we should be motivated. Now, What about the person, though, that doesn't ever come and uh, ask for forgiveness? What about the person that doesn't even know they sinned against you? And what about the situation where you need to go to them, but what do you do? Okay, here's the third thing. Go in love. Go in love whenever you must, okay, to multiply loving, or I'm sorry, confront in love. Love confronts sin in a loving manner. Love confronts sin in a loving manner. Love goes and confronts sin. Now, the need for going is clear. This eliminates the idea that, well, if I love enough, I don't have to go to them. I can just cover it. Okay? But here's the reality. The need for going is clear in at least two passages. Luke 17, 3 says this. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So rebuking is going. So it's not unloving to do that. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens in private, there's the loving part. You have won your brother. The need, though, for going in love is laid out in passages like Galatians 6 and 2 Timothy 2. So here's what I want to do for the rest of our time. Let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians 6. Because if you just take those two passages in the gospel, rebuke him. (laughs) Okay. It's a strong word. We don't want to soften the word. 
but rebuke him. You know, it doesn't say anything about how to do it. And in Matthew 18, it goes, go and show him his fault in private. But if you're in private, you can beat him up pretty hard because nobody's going to see. It's not telling us how to do it. I'm just saying to you, there's other passages, and the two key ones are Galatians 6 and 2 Timothy 2, that tell us that there is a need for going in love. All right? So let's, let's look at it. Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Follow along as I read it. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ, which I think is the law of love there. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have a reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. Now, what I think you have in that passage are at least four principles that tell us what going in love to confront sin should look like, okay? So, over the years, not only have I had to do this, but I've counseled many people on, well, you need to go to talk to them. And when you go to talk to them, I never send anyone to go talk to anyone without spending a good 20 to 30 minutes on how to do it. Because you're not doing them a service and you're not doing the person you're sending them to a service. You say, well, Chris, what do you tell people? I basically tell them these things. I basically tell them these things. This is what we need to go put into practice when we're confronting sin. It's what we need to tell other people to put into practice when they are going to confront sin in a loving manner. So here's the first one. Going in love means go with spirit control. Woo! Key. Hey, you know what? If you're not controlled by the spirit, don't go. Because basically what you're doing, you're going to say, hey, you're sinning. There's an aspect of your life that's not spirit-controlled. And I'm here to tell you that in a non-spirit-controlled fashion. No, no, no. No, no, no. What's he say? You who are what? Who who does the rebuking, the restoring? You who are, what's the verse say? You who are spiritual. Pneumatikos. People who are spirit-controlled. Now, why is this important? Well, you can't go in love unless you're filled with the Spirit because what's the first characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. You must be Spirit-controlled. I like what uh, uh, one pastor said. It's easy to talk about the fruit of the Spirit while doing very little about it. So Christians need to learn that it's in concrete situations rather than in emotional highs that the reality of the Holy Spirit in their lives is demonstrated. And no place does the fruit of the Spirit get greater demonstration than in forgiving. Asking, giving, rebuking, confronting. Now, you who are spiritual are not just the pastors. Should be the pastors. But it actually should be who? Every single church member. Everyone here can be spiritually qualified to go and address sin in someone else's life 
because every one of us is indwelt by the Spirit and are to be controlled by the Spirit and bear the fruit of the Spirit. Number two, go with spirit control, but number two, go with humble gentleness. Go with humble gentleness. Now, this too is a characteristic of what? The fruit of the Spirit. But it's the characteristic that Paul emphasizes. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness. And the word for gentleness there is, uh, it's an interesting word. It's a power-packed word that can't really be translated into English. It's a mixture of humility and gentleness that exercises authority with a gentleness that comes from a humble heart. In other words, go to people with a humble heart, and a humble heart is a gentle heart. Some of the most powerful, well, the three of the most powerful leaders in the Bible are all described as being gentle. Jesus, the only time he is described in his character, he is described as gentle. Moses and Paul. These were powerful men who walked in gentle humility. In fact, this gentleness is a requirement for all spiritual leaders in the church, but the reason that's a requirement is because every person in the church is to be humbly gentle, gently humble, whichever way you want to do it. Now, what's this mean? Well, and by the way, we don't have time to look at, but the two passages we looked at, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, that talk about forgiving, they both mention gentleness. So this is big. This is big. So two things out of this. Love moves us to go with a very humble perspective. Don't go to the erring person with a condescending attitude that looks down on the person from a position of superiority. You're sinning. I'm not. I'm here to straighten you out. Okay? The rest of the passage, the rest of of, uh, Galatians 6 emphasizes this. It says, look to yourself so that you won't be tempted. If you think you're something, in actuality, you're nothing. Don't be self-deceived. In other words, just go and say, you know what? I'm a sinner just like you. And there'll be a time, and there probably has been times when you needed to come to me. Now it's my time, you know, it's a time to come to you. We're equal in this. No one's superior. No one's better. It also means to go with gentle persuasion. Uh, This gentle, humble perspective and gentle persuasion is the idea. We're still under gentle humility. Don't go with a controlling approach. Don't go saying, "You're, you're doing this, you must do this, you must stop. Go with a consideration. Go like you would want someone. The the main thing I always say is go to someone like you would want them. Go to you. In other words, people ought to know how to go and confront other people on sin by watching how you do that. Okay? I like 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Because ultimately, it's not us who changes hearts. Who is it? It's God. Third, going in love means going with caring compassion. 
Going in love means going with caring compassion. It says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love, for each one will bear his own load. Love doesn't seek to carry the burden. Love doesn't seek to limit responsibility of others. Each one must carry their own load. But love doesn't seek to make anyone's load heavier than what it already is. And sometimes we can go and in confronting and rebuking and challenging, with the best of intentions, we can make people's burdens heavier than lightening them. Amen? Jesus was a master. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. You will find comfort and rest. And he rebuked the Pharisees because they said, you heap bigger burdens on people and you don't lift a finger to lift them. Wow. Heavy duty stuff. All right. Finally, going in love means go with restoring hope. Go with restoring hope. Why do I say that? Because ultimately we're going not only to not increase people's burdens, but we're not going to keep them in further bondage. We're going to set people free. Amen. And I love this. He goes, you who are spiritual rebuke such a one. No, the ultimate goal is restore such a one. Amen. And that, listen, when you begin with the end in mind, it changes everything you do. Okay, our goal is restoration. So how do we, how do we do this? Changes everything. Now, when you take all these verses that we've looked at today, every, almost every one of them ends with a restoring hope. And that's how I got the rest of these points. So our purpose and hope in confronting sin is, one, to see God change hearts. To see God change hearts. That's what 2 Timothy says. He says, look, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they come to their sentence, escape the snare of the devil, having been held. In other words, the idea is our goal is for God to do something in their heart. And that takes a lot of prayer. And almost all these verses have a lot of prayer commands in them. Because ultimately, the changing of hearts is something that the spirit the gospel christ and god does number two to forgive the broken and repentant i like luke 17 the reason we rebuke is so that we can forgive the goal we want to forgive debt number three it's to win back a wayward brother i love matthew 18 15 show him his fault in private if he listens you've won your brother that's what i want i want my brother back i want my sister back I want God's family to be in unity. I want to win back. And then number four, to be used of God to deliver people from judgment. So, I included the last part, not to teach it, but to complete the idea. Well, what if I go in a loving manner and they don't repent? Then in a loving way, follow the loving process of Matthew 18, which I laid out there for you. Now, also, what you have at the table are 12 questions to discern whether you have a judgmental spirit or a critical spirit. And these 12 questions are tremendous to be used. Well, am I really going in love? Am I really spirit-controlled in going? This is just a checklist. Put it in your Bible. Put it up on a mirror. Put it somewhere where you'll see it. And realize that love 
covers through forgiveness and goes and confronts in a loving manner. Amen? Listen, if we did all this at a lay level, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have a need for as much church discipline. It wouldn't get up to that level, right? Because if we just have this loving environment where we're like, hey, I love you, and I don't want to put you on the spot, and I'm not here to put you down. I'm just here to point something out that's causing a little friction here. But my goal, man, is to win you. I, I, I want us to be brothers and sisters. Amen. I want, I want love. I want love, love, love. And so the last thing I want you to do to leaving this forgiveness series is to leave thinking, oh, you know, doing it in an unloving. Don't do it in an unloving manner because love is the context. Amen. And you know what? You and I, we can't do it without him in preaching this to ourselves, exalting him and submitting to him. That's how it is. Okay, let's go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, boy, this, this is kind of a struggle to kind of realign my thinking on a passage. that, And I just pray, Lord, that um, love will reign supreme here in our class and in our church. And, Father, I pray that love will be seen and it will exalt Christ and it will demonstrate the gospel and it will show the God who is just and merciful, who is merciful and yet doesn't ignore justice. Lord, let this message reign and rule in our hearts and let us share it and shout it by both our words and our deeds. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. May we be a forgiving people. In Jesus' name, amen.